perhaps not familiar words to you, but I think a sweet song for us to begin tonight with. To put no confidence in princes, uh, to dust man will return, but we put our hope and trust in the Lord. Here is a sure, steadfast hope for us. I invite you to take your Bible and open to Revelation chapter 16. Revelation 16 is the focus for our study tonight. The goal, the plan, the hope, the prayer is that we will work through the whole chapter. I think we can do it tonight. Our study tonight is entitled Bowls, B-O-W-L-S, Bowls and Blasphemy. Bowls and Blasphemy. We'll do this tonight. Let's read through the entire passage at the beginning, then we'll ask for God's help as we dive in, and then we'll seek to walk through the account before us tonight. Again, since this might be a passage not as familiar to us, I think it would be helpful to hear the whole account and then pray and then walk through it. So Revelation 16, continuing the account in the revelation given to the Apostle John Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and it became a loathsome and malignant sore on the people who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, And it became blood, like that of a dead man. And every living thing in the sea died. Then the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of waters, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the waters saying, Righteous are you who are and who were, O Holy One, because you judged these things. For they poured out the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun, and it was given it to scorch men with fire. Men were scorched with fierce heat. And they blasphemed the name of God, who has the power over these plagues, and they did not repent so as to give him glory. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became darkened, and they gnawed their tongues because of pain, and they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds." The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river, the Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way would be prepared for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are spirits of demons performing signs 
which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God, the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. And they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Har-Mageddon. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there was a great earthquake, such as there had not been since man came to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it, and so mighty. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. Every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. Huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, because its plague was extremely severe. Bowls and blasphemy. Let's ask God for help tonight. Father in heaven, we gather together this Wednesday evening. We have sung to you, hallelujah, praise Jehovah. You are the one true God. You are the one worthy of all worship. You are the one to whom we should seek safety and refuge, salvation. We look then to you, thanking you for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, for his ministry, dying in our place and living in our place rising again, and how he sits at your right hand. We long for his return, the one true king. But we ask tonight even that the Holy Spirit, that you would be the one who opens up our eyes to understand this passage and all of its power and force. That though this be future, we now in the present would be rightly affected and that we would live in a manner that brings you honor and glory. Help us now. We place ourselves beneath your word as humble students looking to you. Be our guide and teacher, we pray. In Christ's great name, we ask this. Amen. Amen. Revelation 16. The broadcast crackled as it aired, and a voice began to speak higher pitch in tone, Uh, what was communicated had a classical bent to it. Those listening, this would be the first time in the nation, for them as a nation, that they would have heard him speak. That asks the question, who was speaking? Well, it was the head of state. Someone considered to be a divine monarch. This figure was the embodiment of both national and spiritual interests. The individual at the very center of all political, spiritual, even military life. 
Who might this figure be heard on the radio? Perhaps the date gives the clue for it. August 15th, 1945. Why, this was none other than the emperor of Japan, Hirohito. We ask, why was he making a broadcast for the nation to hear his voice for the first time? Again, the date, August 15th, 1945, gives us a good clue. Just soon after, not one but two atomic bombs had been dropped on the nation, reaching really the end point of World War II, the toll of that war great on the nation of Japan, Hirohito considering that not thousands but millions of lives of Japanese had been lost. In the very mindset kind of inculcated there in Japan, flowing from Hirohito down through the nation out to the soldiers was one where they would refuse to give up, they would refuse to give terms of surrender. Yet how interesting, his very statement, aired to the nation, effectively signified Japan's surrender. In it, he acknowledged to the nation, as they again heard the voice of their divine monarch for the first time, a statement brief, about four minutes in length, acknowledging for them the toll of what had taken place, acknowledging that moving forward, it would be different for them as a country. Even in this statement, trying to change that mindset and bring people to this understanding that if they were to continue and survive, they needed to now reach this end point and in some way move forward with all the other nations that they had been fighting against. In this statement, Hirohito makes a very interesting phrase where he called the people to endure the unendurable and suffer what is not sufferable. You hear that? Endure the unendurable, suffer what's not sufferable. This became maybe the heartbeat for the nation. As hard as it was, as low as they were, that moving forward, even as as wounded as they were, disappointed in the outcome, the pride that they had as a nation, that whatever it was that they would face, moving forward now in peace, he called them, let's endure that which is unendurable. Let's suffer that which is unsufferable. Again, this was said intending to promote peace. Now, hearing these words, coming across them, couldn't help but think and imagine how they could be used not merely to promote peace, but actually how you could flip it and how a motto like that could be put forward trying to stir people up not to give up, but to continue the resistance. That whatever it is that lies ahead, whatever it is unendurable, whatever is not sufferable, to endure and to suffer. How a statement like that could stir up and rally a group to keep up their resistance. We could say that's really the mindset of the 
unbelievers that are going to be alive at the time at the end of this period we've been walking through in Revelation. That in the future, a time and a date that we don't yet know, there will be this unique seven years where God's people, the church, will be removed. Yes, believers will be saved in the midst of the tribulation, but what takes center stage? God in his sovereignty letting Satan step forward, bringing to the culmination his plan, putting forward his own chosen counterfeit, all the mock and uh, counterfeit of what God will put forward, that in this time of the tribulation, who will come to center stage this figure known as the Antichrist? Or as we've been seeing in Revelation, the beast. The beast following the lead of the dragon, that would be the devil. The beast who has at his side his false prophet. And how there will be great confusion, great deception, how many, many people on this earth will fall behind, bow to, worship, and follow the beast in his kingdom. As this happens on the earth, we've seen also throughout our study, God is not sitting back twiddling his thumbs in heaven, but very much active, very much at work. He will begin a series of judgments, judgments that this earth has not yet seen. Think back with me earlier in Revelation. It begins with these judgments, seven total, known as the seal judgments. That one by one, as the seals are broken and judgment begins to be unleashed on the earth, oh, we've read how, how awful, how, how great will that be? You'd think the effect of receiving that judgment would stir the people up to cry out to God. But has it done that? No, people on the earth are hardened. People on the earth uh, double down in their resistance of the one true God. You could think uh, maybe the false prophet, the mouthpiece for the beast, issuing forth that call, no matter what comes, endure the unendurable. No matter what comes, suffer that which is not sufferable. So then there's a second wave of judgments. Trumpet judgments. God sending forth his angels, sounding each one of these trumpets. And again, in this global, catastrophic way, I mean, signs and wonders and plagues unleashed, even affecting the cosmic realm. What's the net effect? What's the result? Not even double, but triple down in their resistance and deepen their allegiance to this counterfeit Christ. Again, it's an old resistance, an old struggle going back to the very beginning of time, going all the way back to the garden. How the devil has sought to attack and undermine the one true God and we now are coming to see the very culmination of this. 
We come now tonight, you heard it already in chapter 16, after these seven seal judgments, after the seven trumpet judgments, now the final third wave of God's judgment unleashed on planet earth. It's the bowl judgments. We heard last time as Pastor Kerry walked through chapter 15, when it speaks of these bowls, it's, it's like a, a tiny saucer. That I'm sure back in the ancient world in Rome, those individuals would have these bowls, these saucers, much like how you and I might have them today. And yet in some unique way, there are these bowls in it that are to be poured out upon the earth, each one of them another unleashing of God's wrath and judgment. It helps us to see as we come to walk through tonight these seven bowl judgments. Again, the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, they have been great. They have been intense. But what are they compared to what is about to be unleashed? This is going to be the last judgment that God will pour out on the earth really at what comes to be at the end of this seven-year period of the tribulation, this period that the Bible will speak of as the day of the Lord. Right before what we will hear soon in chapter 19, the glorious return of the true king. But before we get to that, this final stage at the end of the tribulation, at the end of the day of the Lord, at this period, God will unleash these judgments. We might stop and think, okay, but but why stressing how intense they are? They've ratcheted up in intensity because mankind's sinful rebellion has ratcheted up in its intensity. The hardness of man's heart, the intensity of their rebellion is such now that God will meet it and exceed it with his righteous judgment on the earth. Ooh, so what do we need to do tonight? Can we buckle up? I mean, this is, this is intense. You heard it already. Tonight, we're going to walk through the seven bold judgments to help break them down maybe in a more bite size, that's not even appropriate to say, but to divide them in some way, I mean, how do you divide these bold judgments? We'll walk through the first four, we'll group them together, and then the last three, we'll group them together. The first four, if you're taking notes, we'll simply label them this. What are these first four bold judgments? Terrestrial Judgment. Terrestrial judgment. That's just a big way of saying uh, judgment on earth. Terrestrial earth. Judgment uniquely focused on earth. Earth as a whole. Earth as in worldwide across the globe. And the stress of that, because some of the earlier seal and trumpet judgments, they were more localized or they affected a third of the world. But these first four bold judgments, they are global 
around the earth, terrestrial in nature. We begin in verse 1 and we hear a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, whose voice is this? None other than God himself from his great heavenly temple. He proclaims to seven angels who've been singled out, go pour out on the earth the seven bold judgments of the wrath of God. They then, obedient, quickly following what their creator proclaims, the first angel steps up in verse 2, the first bowl judgment. We read that he went and he poured out his bowl on the earth. And what is this first judgment? It became a loathsome and malignant sore on the people who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. Again, the angel steps up, obeying what God says, takes the first bowl, pours it out, not gradually, uh, not needing to ramp it up, but immediate, dumping it out. And what's the effect? Loathsome and malignant sores. What's a sore? Painful, intense, agonizing, oozing, ulcerous, lesions. That as they are poured out, this judgment suddenly those on the earth, uh, a pandemic breaks out. Takes us back and makes us think. Have we heard of sores before in the Bible? Why, yes. Long ago, back in Exodus, you think of what happened in Egypt. One of the plagues that God poured out on the Egyptian people and on Pharaoh specifically, sores that afflicted the ancient Egyptians. Sores that covered them from head to toe. Sores that were so sore, it was uncomfortable to stand, it was uncomfortable to sit, it was uncomfortable to lay down. No matter what movement, no matter what non-movement, it was awful. Pain was constant. That which was long ago for Egypt, now in this bold judgment, is poured out and it afflicts all people on the earth. And we hear that and we think, ooh, that, that, that sounds bad. I, I, I would hope to avoid that. Uh, but, but let's press in a little bit. Let's even think what this could be like. And we've heard of the bubonic plague long ago, what that would have been like for people. We've heard of a thing like smallpox, but what, more recently? We've heard in the news something called monkeypox. Maybe a description of it can help us get a grasp of what this would be like as it was poured out in this first bowl judgment. There have been photos circulating on the internet of one man, an individual infected with the disease, a severe case of monkeypox, first going to the doctors, noticing a red spot on his nose, thinking it was just a case of sunburn. Three days passed, it worsened. 
he realizes that he has monkeypox, and as he would detail, and as doctors would observe, in three days, suddenly the area on his nose progressed to a form of necrosis, death of the body tissue. He began to be treated with several antivirals. The lesions on his skin began to dry out. He improved, but likely will have permanent scarring. Another individual shared his experience a bit more thoroughly. A man in his mid-30s, blood tests had indicated he had a strong immune system. In fact, the article said, and I quote, a robust immune system. He started to feel unwell. He began to have a mild fever. Over the course of 24 hours, it then developed where he said he had excruciating pain throughout his body. Quote, it felt like ripping off your flesh from your bones. Five days passed with fevers more than 103 degrees, trying to take all sorts of medicines to keep that down, experiencing swollen glands, a sore throat, a heat rash because of the fevers. He is well noticing a painless pimple-like spot on his nose and didn't think anything of it. He went to see the doctors to try to get treatment. He had a test done, but the results hadn't come back yet. So they sent him home with other treatment. His condition, though, only worsened, where he said his throat began to be so painful and swollen that he couldn't eat, he couldn't drink, he could hardly swallow. He goes back to the doctors. They see what's happened. They then admit him. Then the test results came back that he was positive for monkeypox, and then the lesions appeared. Sores appeared, hands, legs, feet, throat, mouth, nose. They began to be infected. An image was shared, which is really disturbing to see. He then began to be treated with antivirals, doctors coming in to treat him, wearing hazmat suits, he alone isolated. He then later improved. He was discharged. And he said, trying to offer hope, look at me, it took some time, but I'm fine. And think this is going to afflict all people on the earth. Not monkeypox, but some sores that will affect all people that you then might try to relieve. Maybe you're thinking, okay, medically, maybe I can lance this thing and get some relief. But that's not going to lead to relief. Those at this time, as the first bowl is unleashed, they will not be able to join in with this man and say, look at me now, I'm fine. It will be bad. But there is hope. Some will be preserved. There will be a group who will not be afflicted with this illness, these sores. Who are those? Well, they are those who have not had the mark of the beast. And they've not worshipped his image. Again, a reminder for us, there will be believers alive during this tribulation. Kept in the midst of this judgment, having been saved during the tribulation, and yet God remembers them, God preserves them. This judgment is unleashed on unbelievers. You see it in verse 2. Those who have the mark of the beast and who worship his image. First bowl. Second bowl, verse 3. Again, no respite, no relief. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea. 
And what's the effect? What's the result? It became blood like that of a dead man. And every living thing in the sea died. We might read this and think, okay, you sure this isn't symbolism? You sure this isn't just some apocalyptic extreme language? This all turning to blood, really? You could be sitting here tonight thinking that, and you'd be thinking maybe much like those back in ancient Egypt. Again, sort of like the plague that was unleashed, where those in Egypt, maybe even Pharaoh, would get news. Uh, The Nile is no longer water. What? No way. They then come to see, no, it too, the grand, mighty Nile River, it had been turned in judgment to blood. So here, so now, in the future, in the exact same way, except not just the river, here we read the sea. Think ocean. Do you remember those lessons in science long ago? How much of the earth is covered with water? What, they say, what, approximately 70%, give or take? All of that now turning to blood? In some supernatural way, by means of this judgment, all of it turns to blood. 70% of the earth turns to blood. Blood like that of a dead man, like there's liver mortis from sea to shining sea, coagulated, congealed, dark, deoxygenated Venus blood. We think of the phrase, hearing something will make your blood curdle. Well, here... 70% of the earth is curdling in blood. So much so we read, all the sea life dies. And you begin to think the combined effect of the death and the decay. Bringing in another science lesson, I learned that earth has five major wind zones. Polar easterlies, westerlies, horse latitudes, trade winds, and doldrums. Blowing, blowing, blowing. All the stench, all the smell from all the dead sea life all across the globe. You imagine the olfactory effect. You know, the visceral gag reflex. Nostrils filled with the putrid smell. Third bowl, verses four through seven. Then the third angel poured out his bowl. Again, you might think at this point, okay, well, at least we got the rivers, right? It gets the salt water, but at least we got the fresh water. Oh, sorry. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water. And what happened? They became blood. Ocean salt water turns to blood now. The remaining fresh water turns to blood. And if we've been keeping track earlier in Revelation by means of the other judgments that have taken place, specifically in chapter 8, the third trumpet judgment, where one-third of the world's fresh water has been poisoned, 
That has been already in effect. And you have the two witnesses that God sends forth that by means of their ministry, in some mysterious way, they're able to hold back rain on the earth, bringing about drought. Chapter 11, verse 6. Maybe already they're feeling at this point our supply of fresh water is, uh, we're a little nervous about it. And then for this third bowl to strike all that remains of fresh water, streams, creeks, rivers, reservoirs, wetlands, ponds, lakes, great lakes, all of it affected. The remote Yakara Valley on the island of Viti Levu, the source for, some of you might drink Fiji water, affected. The pristine wilderness of southern Norway, the artesian source for Voss water. Some of you might drink that. Affected. Or even for us here more locally, the Yadkin River, the Salem Lake, Bellows Creek. Affected. No relief, no help, all turned to blood. You know, we could hear that and we could then think, you know, I kind of feel bad for these people. I mean, isn't this kind of extreme? To think that God is the one afflicting this? I mean, doesn't that put into our minds what we hear from people? The God that you serve, he is a moral what? Monster? He's just some cruel deity? I mean, some hearing this and saying, well, my God would never judge like that. My God isn't wrathful. And to be blunt, yeah, they're right. Their God would never do that. Because their God doesn't exist. Because their God isn't the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible who is full of grace and truth and shows mercy but is also holy and will justly, righteously act in judgment and in wrath. And so we hear as we even begin to maybe anticipate pushing back, you keep reading. What do we hear? The angel of the waters saying, righteous are you who are and who were. O holy one, because you judged these things. This angel seeing what has happened and him proclaiming, even clapping the hands, this is right, O God. It is right, it is correct, it is proper for you to judge in this way. Why, we might ask? Verse 6 gives us the reason. For they poured out the blood of the saints and prophets. Of these people on the earth, this God has been incredibly patient with them. Long-suffering with them. He has given them time and time and time again, sending forth his witnesses, warning them of what is to come if they don't turn to him in repentance. 
I mean, he sends forth these two witnesses who have a global prophetic ministry warning of the wrath to come. He's saved 144,000 Jewish national people who effectively scatter and are witnesses to the one true God, and yet they are not heard. Rather, they are persecuted. They are martyred. All for bringing to them the message of salvation. And again, how great is this suffering? How great are the martyrs? Back in chapter 7, we heard earlier, it is a great multitude that no one can count. We read, these are the ones who have come out of the great tribulation. Oh, true believers, they've been slaughtered in this period. I mean, they have gone forth like missionaries, have gone forth. You think of uh, Jim Elliott and the other individuals, the the five from America going to the Aka Indians to give them the good news of the gospel to then immediately be slaughtered and their lives are taken. Bringing to them the very message of life. Bringing them the message that saves them from their sin and their response is them being killed. I mean, the irony here, in their persecution of believers, they have been bloodthirsty. And God says, okay, I will give you what you wish. They poured out the blood of saints and prophets. You have given them blood to drink. And boldly, directly, emphatically, declaratively, they deserve it. And they do. And so do you. So do I. We're getting a glimpse here of what it is that we really deserve. Again, we hear of eternal wrath suffered in hell, weeping and gnashing of teeth where there is unrelenting, full fury of God's wrath that is unremitted, no relief from that. And we hear that, and maybe by means of these judgments, seal, trumpet, and now bowl, we're getting to see on earth with images that we can grasp how intense, how awful it is. What it is that should be put on us because we have sinned against the same good, great, gracious, glorious God. And yet has he not shown us mercy? He sent forth his messengers who have brought to you and to me this same gospel by means of which we've been saved. And even before that, the many times and in the many ways that he has been patient, so patient in the same way how patient he has been, so patient. And yet there comes a time when the day of mercy is over. And the day of the Lord is at hand. 
It's like the language we read in Hebrews chapter 10. It is a terrifying expectation of judgment and fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. But again, the perspective of those in heaven, those not tainted by sin, they see it clearly. They echo, they affirm, verse 7, Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. Again, let me be clear. Not, Not that we hear this and think this and delight gleefully. Not sadistically rejoicing in this but to come to the place where we see it is right for God to punish sin in this way. And we pray and we plead and we beg that people would come to know the Lord, just like those in this time had done that. But again, there comes a time where God's patience in a holy way runs out. Fourth bowl. Again, just terrestrial judgment focused on the earth as a whole. The fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun, and it was given it to scorch men with fire. Uh, The angel pours out his bowl on the sun, and it then has the effect that those on earth uh, begin to feel more intense heat. I I mean, studying this, how, how do we begin to capture this? I mean, the sun itself is this massive, massive, how do you even quantify the power constantly going on and in all of its reactions? And that far away, and yet we feel the heat that far away, and, and there are times where we have intense heat waves on the earth. And yet, by some means of this fourth bowl judgment, the sun is affected, unleashing heat waves unlike anything people have seen. You can even think unleashing solar storms upon the earth unlike anything that's been seen. You think, okay, if, if we are where we are now by means of technology... And however far in the future this will be and however much technology is going to advance to be at that point. And yet this heat and these solar storms being unleashed. No, it's like a devastating solar EMP bomb going off across the globe. You can think crippling technology, shutting down whatever energy grid they have. Again, crippling the people, bringing them low. There's no access to water. They're feeling the intensity of the heat. They themselves covered with the source. You would think, surely, surely they will cry out, God, help me. Yet what do we read? They blasphemed the name of God. Who has the power over these plagues? They're not just running around wondering what's going on. Is is this some other pandemic from Wuhan that's been unleashed? No, they know explicitly attributing it. This is all from the one true God and yet they blaspheme his name. And verse 9 tells us they did not repent so as to give him glory. 
Do we not sit here tonight and think, how can they do this? The madness of crowds. The sinfulness of sin. The stupidity of sin. That here are people who are so hardened, they can't even acknowledge they have done something wrong. They are so hardened, they can't even admit that they've done anything and that they are at fault. And what is their cry? What is their banner? As they blaspheme the one true God, oh, they're the living embodiment. We will not have this God to reign over us. Now that's the terrestrial judgment. Four, and there's three more, We move now to the fifth, sixth, and seventh bowl judgments. We've seen the terrestrial judgment. Now we come to observe, we'll label it this, territorial judgment. Territorial judgment. These last five, admittedly, they do affect the whole earth, but it's as if they are uniquely targeting the beast and his empire. That territory. Zeroed in on the counterfeit Christ. So we come to the fifth bowl, verses 10 and 11. Then, again, this is just unbroken. One, two, three, four, now five, fifth bowl. The fifth angel poured out his bowl, you see it, on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became darkened. Can we read this and we're not sure exactly, okay, wherever his empire is, again, set up as Babylon, somewhere perhaps in the Middle East, whether it's just there or in a unique way there, but yet globally, suddenly now the fifth bowl, there's darkness, such great darkness. They nod their tongues because of pain. I mean, it makes you think of those back in Sodom and Gomorrah. The angels strike them blind, and what do we read? They keep still searching for the door to break in to take the men, the angelic figures. The judgment continues to harden them. The judgment doesn't change them. The judgment rather confirms them. It reveals the hardness of their hearts. Again, this darkness, it's total, it's utter darkness, it's foreshadowed and talked about in passages like Joel 2 and Zephaniah 1. Again, this is the day of the Lord here. Again, such effect, they're gnawing their tongues because of the pain. And we, again, we understand that, whatever these sores are, how intense that is. And yet in some way, they're trying to comfort and console themselves And with those same tongues, what do they do? They, again, do you see it in verse 11? They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent. In fact, this will be the last time we read explicitly, they did not repent. As if in an ominous way, it's done, it's sealed. There is now no hope for them. 
Again, they're not changed, but confirmed. And now here, condemned. Takes us to the sixth bowl. We read in verse 12, the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river, the Euphrates. Again, all the focus and attentions, what's going on in this area in the Middle East. And as this bowl is poured out, it says the water of this great river, it's dried up. Why? That the way would be prepared for the kings from the east. Again, some have surmised because of the prior judgment with the intensity of the heat, that's begun to affect maybe the ice caps leading to flooding. Maybe that's begun to melt all the snow on tops of mountains. In fact, the Euphrates, its sources in Mount Ararat, maybe because of this heat, uh, the snow melting, ice melting, the waters gushing now down at the source, down into the river, maybe even flooding, maybe even overflowing. But here now with this sixth bowl, all of it is dried up. And we're told kind of cryptically that a way is made so that kings from the east, they can come, that they can arrive, that it's been prepared for them. And again, this has been intense. And John now will throw in, it gets even worse. There's a vision within this larger vision here. Verse 13, I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, out of the mouth of the false prophet. Again, who are these? Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. The three of them together, what are they forming? A mockery of the Trinity. This unholy, this counterfeit Trinity, as they have deceived people on the earth and have built up this false religion of worshiping the beast, we now see John seeing that out of their mouth, the source from them, he sees three unclean spirits like frogs. And we can think, oh, frogs cute. Let me take a picture. Let me try to capture it and put it in a uh, whatever it's called where you keep frogs. For those back in ancient Israel, you can read frogs were actually considered unclean. And some say yes, amen to that. But no, it's not literal frogs. John's just grasping for language here, like frogs. What are they? Verse 14 tells us, they are spirits of demons. Performing signs, which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God, the Almighty John is seeing these bold judgments and then he sees almost in response from the dragon, from the beast, from the false prophets, these demonic figures issued forth. They begin to go across the globe all to band together. 
by performing signs. They go not just to the kings from the east, but kings around the whole world. Why? To stir them all up, joining in with the beast to go to war against God. And you jump to verse 16. They gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Har-Mageddon. We know it as Ar-Mageddon. You could translate it the uh, Mount Megiddo or the Hill of Megiddo, the Plain of Megiddo. Likely a very real place in the land of Palestine that maybe you've heard of it. Napoleon once saw it, observed it, and said, oh, this, this would be the greatest suitable battle site for any major battle in the future. Even that all people could come here for a great battle royale. Again, no let up, no second thinking, no repentance, but doubling down, tripling down, let's come together to make war. And there are still believers alive in the midst of this onslaught. You could think in the midst of war, how people who are innocent and helpless find shelter. I mean, we've what, read of individuals in the Ukraine right now as missiles have been launched and cities have been bombed targeting children and women and innocent citizens. How they've huddled together, how they've gone without electricity and without water trying to make sure that they will be okay. People much like that, God brings to them a word of hope. Verse 15, behold, I'm coming like a thief. In other words, I'm coming quickly. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. In other words, you are not forgotten. You believers, this God is saying to them, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I am coming soon. I'm coming quickly. You need to then be like a soldier ready for my arrival. Not asleep, not slumbering, but ready position, watching and praying, ready for the fight, and assuredly dressed appropriately. In other words, what we've seen earlier, dressed in the righteousness of the Lamb. Word of hope comes to them. Again, all the rest of the earth, all the kings banding together. You know, it makes you think of Psalm 2. Banding together against Yahweh and against his anointed. Here's the living out of that. Although, can we take a step back and admit it, this is comical? Comical to call this even a battle? that they're going to go to war against the one true God? We're going to hear about it in the upcoming chapters. But I think you know what the outcome will be. That's the sixth bull. We come now to the seventh. The seventh angel, verse 17, poured out his bowl upon the air. And a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. 
And there were flashes of lightning, sounds, peals of thunder. This is the signification, again, at last, the last judgment on the earth against the empire of the beast. You notice it's poured out on the air. God then proclaims from his heavenly throne, it is done. And at that, there's flashes of lightning. We read sounds, peals of thunders. There's an earthquake. An earthquake, you can't even register it on the Richter scale. I mean, some of you have lived through that before. Our pastor lived through the famous 1994 Northridge earthquake. And you see it, verse 18, this earthquake, such as there has not even been since man came to be on the earth. Can you imagine what this will be like? What happens? Verse 19 tells us, the great city was split into three parts. The cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. You know, we come to the beginning of verse 19, we read that the great city is split into three parts. Some look at this and they would connect it, well, just a few phrases later with Babylon the great. That this capital city for the beast's empire, whatever, wherever it is, however it's built up, that it's split into three parts. You know, that's possible. It might be, though I think it, it is a little unique that you would call it the great city and then just again, just so few phrases later, call it again now Babylon the great. Others would say, and I lean towards this, in fact, I take this view that the great city earlier in Revelation, we've heard Jerusalem referred to that. I believe it's Jerusalem. That as this is unleashed, Jerusalem is split into three parts. We ask why? Well, again, we're in Revelation. How many books of the Bible have come before Revelation? A lot. How many prophecies have come before this book? A lot. Prophecies about the future, prophecies about the millennial kingdom when Christ will come back. Prophecies like specifically in Zechariah chapter 14 verses 4 through 10 that begin to describe on the earth and specifically with Jerusalem there's going to be changes in the geography, in the topography with the city and with all around it. And then, of course, when Christ comes back, great things will take place. Perhaps it's a glimpse, perhaps it's a clue of Jerusalem being set up that here, this is going to be the real capital city. Not Babylon with the beast, but Jerusalem with the coming Christ. It's going to be prepared. What happens to the cities of the nations? They fall. What happens to Babylon the Great? Again, ground zero of godlessness. The capital city of the great anti-God, anti-Christ empire. 
God marks it out such that, what do we read? He gives her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. Maybe the most intense, the choicest of his wrath reserved for this city. As that happens, there's more changes geographically and uh, in topography on the earth. Verse 20 tells us every island fled away and the mountains were not found. Can we think, that what? That's happening? Islands are disappearing and mountains are disappearing? Think back, if, if there's an earthquake like such has never happened on the earth, surely something like this could happen. Maybe even going back to the great city Jerusalem, as well as these other prophecies, that all is being directed, all attention, even in earth's geography, will now be fixated on the city of Jerusalem where the Lamb will return and set up the throne of David on which he will reign, as we read in chapter 20, for 1,000 glorious years. And not only that's happening, huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each. Chunks of ice, meteors, unleashed on men. And one more time to echo in our ears, what do we hear from those on earth in response to these bold judgments? Men blasphemed God. Friend, these are the bold judgments. This is something that's going to happen in the future. You say, okay, but we're here now in the present. There are things we can take away tonight. What can we take away tonight? First, the power of unbelief. I mean, we've seen how many times in just this one chapter how instructive for us tonight Unbelief is great in its wickedness and great in its power. We saw in the account, they know this is all from the one true God. They know exactly where this is coming from. And earlier in Revelation, they as well admit the judgments are coming from God. I mean, we could sit tonight, maybe you've thought this before, you know... I'm not sure about this Bible. I'm not sure about this Christianity. If God would just give me a sign, then I'm in. Then I'll believe. Come on, get to it. Give me a sign, God. I'm ready to join your team. You ever had a thought like that? 
You could be sitting here tonight thinking that. If God will just show me, if God will just do this miracle, if I could just witness a sign from God, and friend, if that's, if that's tonight your reasoning, if there's some sign, then I'll repent. You'll never repent. I mean, this is exactly what the Pharisees demanded from God incarnate long ago. Okay, teacher, perform a sign. And what was the response of our Lord Jesus to that demand? You adulterous generation. Put differently, God is not a performer. God isn't just here to perform his act that you then are impressed and you then join in with him. You could be impressed, but like these people, remain impenitent. Further, who are you or who am I to try to set the terms with this God? He's not the one on trial. Rather, you and I are. Behold the power of unbelief. Again, they haven't been without witness. 144,000 saved Jews, special two witnesses, proclaiming salvation, proclaiming repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and yet you've heard the maxim, the same sun that melts the wax does what? It hardens the clay. We have to have in our mind there is this category as you read in 2 Corinthians, the message of the gospel, the aroma of Christ. For some, it is this aroma from life to life. And yet for some, for some, it will be a message of death to death. And here we see in this chapter, as I said several times, God's judgment does not change someone. It confirms someone. That's what will happen for all of eternity in hell. People aren't changed. They're confirmed in their unbelief and in their hostility against God. You think of the lengths to which this unbelief will go, the lengths to which an unbelieving heart will dig in its heels and refuse to honor God, that the knees they will lock and will refuse to buckle and bend in submission. I mean, is that, is that you tonight? Every knee will bow. Without exception. Whether they're bent in humility for salvation or whether they're broken in judgment as we see here. Every knee will bow. I should warn us tonight of the power of this unbelief. Second, let us see tonight the rightness of wrath. Again, you see unbelief in this way. Unbelief, it's not just intellectual. This is moral. This is spiritual. This is hard-hearted, resistant, 
treasonous refusal to bow before this God, refusal to admit even in an iota, I am in the wrong. It is right for God then to pour out his judgment as the angels proclaim, righteous are you. Yes, O Lord God. And we can be confused or tripped up on this. I mean, really? Is it right? Yes. Why sin is that sinful? And if in any way this God were not to deal this way with sin, what does that do? That calls his own character into question. On an earthly level, we see that. We hear of the news report. We hear of some court case. We hear the evidence. We come to the conclusion that individual is guilty. That individual should be punished for what they've done. And if then word is let out, the judge has let him go free. The uproar, the anguish, the turmoil, that's not right. How infinitely more with the perfect, holy, righteous God for him to tolerate, for him to do nothing, for him to just let go, let off the hook. That calls his very godness and holiness into question. And by the way, he is the one who sent forth his son that on his son pouring out the righteous wrath for his people so that we read in Romans, he can be proclaimed just and the justifier, right? The rightness of wrath, the power of unbelief, the rightness of wrath, we'll label a third, the takeaway, the final one tonight, the folly of delay. I mean, we read this here, spelled out crystal clear, the ink permanent there in your Bible, Settled, sure, this is what is going to come to pass. This is how God will deal with those who refuse to come to him. And again, I, I, I appeal, I don't know who, God knows. Are you tonight going to delay again? As Hebrews will ask, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Hebrews 4, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. I ask simply, in light of this judgment, have you hidden yourself in the refuge that God has provided? The refuge of his son. Looking to him, calling out, rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. And and if you have, oh, cling to him. Continue to cling to him. And as he has saved you with this gospel, will you not then go and be his very instrument and ambassador to proclaim the good news of good tidings that the king offers terms of peace to those who have rebelled against him? The seven bowl judgments. Father in heaven, we come tonight. 
asking for help, thanking you for grace. We see sin and unbelief in a new light. We see your judgment and wrath in a new light. Help us then to see your son in a new light. The one who came and bore the very wrath that we deserved. The one who hung upon the cross and was cursed that we might be pronounced free. The one who was estranged that we might be welcomed in. The one who became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We don't know when this will come to pass. We know not how many years before these all come into motion. But you have entrusted us with this precious message to go and to be your ambassadors. Help us to do that. And God, overcome the unbelief of any who hear this word tonight. Grant new life. We ask this for your son's sake. Amen.